At the end of Isaiah chapter 40, there's these uh, amazing words. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and shall not faint. Now, if, you're, if you've uh, moved around in Christian circles at all, you've probably seen these words on a poster or maybe received them on a card. They're very appropriate words. Uh, when someone is going through something difficult and you, and you want to encourage them to, to look to God and find their strength in him. The words are stated in physical terms that we can easily relate to. So some of you maybe have done the Abbotsford grind. And I've done it and I've sat on that cliff there overlooking the valley. And sometimes there you'll see the, the birds, you'll see an eagle and just, you know, effortless, effortlessly uh, soaring into the skies. And meanwhile, I'm sitting there or standing or slouched over <sighs> trying to catch my breath because usually when I do the Abbotsford grind, I'm following the super fit and they run and are not weary from my perspective, but I just wish that was true of me. These words seem very out of reach, almost superheroish to me. Like they shall mount up with wings like eagles. Is that the falcon or is that the iron man? They shall run and not be weary. Is that like Quicksilver? You get the picture. Um, it doesn't seem real, does it? These words at the end of Isaiah 40. And it seems even more unreal when you consider that these words aren't just really speaking about physicality. They're speaking about something deeper. Represents our emotional, our spiritual, our inner strength. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and shall not faint. It's an amazing picture. And this morning in a mixed crowd, I know there'll be some of us that right now, you feel fatigued and tired. And if you aren't in that place, you have experienced it or will be confronted by it in the future. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. I want that. In Isaiah 40, this promise is said to be particularly true of people who wait for the Lord. A number of translations translate that word wait as hope. And so it is, a, it is a hopeful waiting, a resting, but it's not necessarily passive. It's a resting, a waiting, a hoping with great anticipation that may stir us to action. Those are the ones, the Bible says, who are eagle-like. They are gazelle-like. And given the context of what we're going to see of Isaiah 40, this is a remarkable promise. And if it seems unreal to you, it would have seemed impossible to Israel but as God was holding it out to them, I want to say that God is holding it out to you. See, when Isaiah spoke, sometimes he, he was speaking just to the immediate audience that he was writing to by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But so much of Isaiah is quoted in the New Testament because his words went past his lifetime and past the, the century around him and reached out to the cross it speaks of the life of Jesus and what he's done and what takes place as the result of Jesus. And some of Isaiah's words proceed past the life of Jesus, flow, flow all the way out to the end of time when there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. And so Isaiah is, is, is multifaceted in his communication and even the theme of Isaiah's message changes in this record we have of him 
so that he is speaking in different ways in different circumstances to God's people in the decades ahead of him. Because of that, a number of scholars feel that there were different people who wrote the book of Isaiah and wrote them in different time periods. Isaiah chapter 1 to verse 39 in particularly focuses on judgment and hope is, is more faint in the background. Isaiah 40 to the end of the, of the book, Isaiah 40 to chapter 66, focuses on hope with judgment in the background. So what we are looking at today in Isaiah 40 is a hinge chapter. The message is changing on its emphasis. The people of God, Israel, will have been punished by God. As God's chosen people, they had struggled to be obedient to God, and they struggled with uh, idolatry. Generation after generation had not walked in in integrity with God, and God had repeatedly warned them, including Isaiah, chapters 1 to 39, asking them to change their hearts, change their behavior, and come into alignment with his kingdom. And God does not cry wolf, So after a period of time, they are punished and judgment comes to pass. Jerusalem, the place where the the people thought could never, ever be conquered because it was the place of God's presence actually will become a ruin and the people will be exported to the northern land of Babylon. So think of today Israel being moved, migrated forcibly from Israel to Iraq. In chapter 40 onward, Isaiah is now speaking to the people of God who will find themselves in Babylon. They will be exiled because of their own doing. So now don't look at the text for a moment and let me ask you this question. What does your view of God anticipate that God would be like to a people that he has punished because of their own doing, because of their sin? What would God be like to them? Or to make it more personal, what do you think, what, do you, what does your view of God anticipate? How will God be like, what will God be like to you when you have failed him? When you have failed God more than a little bit, when you have failed him big time, what do you expect God to be like towards you? Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Isaiah now emphasizes hope and speaks encouragement. You know, I was not a perfect kid when I grew up. I know that's shocking to most of you. I would occasionally get in trouble. And I have to be careful what I say right now because I did not expect this, but my mom is in the audience this morning. (laughs) So she can verify the truth on this. Occasionally, I would get in trouble, and my parents were such that when I needed to be corrected, or my brother in particular, or even my sister, when we needed to be corrected, we would really feel it. Afterwards, there would be the crying, and there would be the, you know, the sobbing and intermittent breathing, and there would also be the... the, the loving arms of my mom or my dad wrapping me in love, speaking tender words to me of encouragement. Verse two, speak tenderly to Jerusalem 
and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. When I was punished, I, I was never punished as an end in itself. It was for my good. And when my parents punished me afterwards, they wouldn't say, okay, you were punished for what you did, but ah, you know what, we've changed our mind. Just go ahead and do what you were doing. I mean, that would never have been the case. The, the punishment had an end. It, it was to direct me as a young man into a lifestyle, a way of life that would be good for me and good for everyone around me. And so it is with God and his people. In verse three, Isaiah writes, a voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So Judah will be disciplined, but God will come and comfort her and, and to really prepare for that, the people are to make a highway for God to be able to do that. In preparation for the, the 2010 Olympic Games, maybe you'll remember this, but our province, British Columbia, went to great trouble to prepare some of our roads, especially up to Whistler, to prepare for the people when they would come. And so it is, Isaiah's painting a picture that Israel is to repair the road for God's presence. And the groundwork that they are to do in their department of spiritual highways is repentance. We know that because ultimately this passage of scripture is repeated in the New Testament gospels and it speaks of John the Baptist who was sent by God to prepare the way for Jesus. A voice crying in the wilderness, make way, prepare. He says, repent. In other words, turn. Turn from where, the way you're living, the way you're thinking, and turn to Jesus. In verse four here, Isaiah writes, every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. So I, Isaiah gives us this picture of repentance where the road is smoothed out, and it, it's like a welcome mat for the presence of the glory of God, just like Israel had experienced in the desert before in the Exodus. This is what God is promising to his people once again. And it will be visible to all, amazing. Absolutely amazing. But can you believe it? I mean, come on. You're gonna be in Babylon, you're gonna be exiled, your home was destroyed back in Jerusalem. Here you are in a foreign land. Can you really believe that? Can you believe that God will come to you? That he will reveal himself to you? When you find yourself in a difficult place and, and some of that difficulty, you know you're just reaping what you've sown. It's part of your own doing. Can you believe that God will come to you? See, when the reality seems so hard and so in our face, hope is seldom found. Judah and Israel had not believed the prophets when they proclaimed that they would be judged if they didn't change their ways. They couldn't believe that God would ever, you know, let his city of Jerusalem be touched. And so they had the law. They had the spoken word of the prophet, but they did not believe them. And just as hard as it was for them to believe the prophets in the days past about God's judgment, so it would be hard for them now to believe God's word of hope and encouragement. That God would be good to them? That God would still 
come to them? After all they've done? See, it just boggles our human mind, but it doesn't matter what man thinks. Verse six, a voice cries, a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, he repeats himself, get this, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Will God comfort them? Will God comfort, come to them? Not if it's based on humanity. Not if it's based on human effort. Not if it's based on human goodness. And it won't matter if, if evil opposes it. What matters is what has God spoken? What does his word say? God says in verse five, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Verse eight, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. He can do it. He will do it in Israel's life, in yours. See, don't look at your circumstances. We need to look at God's word and what it says. And this is good news. In verse 9, he writes, Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion. Zion represented Israel or the people of God. Herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Herald of good news, lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Look to the greater reality. Don't just look at the circumstances in front of you. Listen to God's word and look to him. Behold your God. See, in our circumstances, it's not so much about who we are. It's who God is. In our circumstances, it's not so much about what we can do. It's what God can do. And look what Isaiah says he is going to do here in verse 10. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. It's like a picture of a king. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms, and he will carry them in his bosom. So let me summarize what Isaiah has said so far. God's people will be punished. They'll be exiled. But in that place of, of judgment, God will not give up on them. He will come to them. He is not going to abandon them. He is a gracious king who's going to come with gifts. And he comes like a, a caring shepherd. He is powerful, but he is caring. And he is for them. He is not against them. Behold your God. Christian, those of you who profess Jesus, he is still your God. Can he do something powerful in your life? Will he? See, it seems Isaiah anticipated skepticism because he's going to remind us now of how great God really is and how much he cares. We need to change the channel in our mind of what we believe and what we look at. See, if you're sitting in Babylon and you're looking at Babylon TV, you know, day after day after day, and the news is always bad and gloomy and always speaks evil of you, you're going to begin to believe that. And Isaiah wants to show them a different picture. Change the channel and look at what God says. Look at who God is. He begins. Let's switch the channel. Let's look at science and nature. Verse 12. 
Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Now we know that God is a spirit. But to help us understand God, writers would often um, speak of God in human terms. Uh, There's a fancy word for that. It's called anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism. And it, it helps to compare what God would be like if he was, had human flesh, was like a human being, and compared to us in our flesh. This is how Isaiah is writing in verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Now take, take one hand, because it says it's singular. Take one hand and cup it. Look at the volume you could hold in your hand. Isn't that astounding? So yesterday, I tried a quarter cup of water, and I poured it into this cup of my hand, and guess what happened? Like, it just went everywhere. So I reduced it down to an eighth of a cup, and guess what happened? It just went everywhere. Isaiah says, think of it, how much would the cup in God's hand hold? See, your bathtub, if you've got just a regular bathtub, that's like 30 to 50 gallons of water. If you have one of those nice jacuzzi soaker-type tubs, it's probably 60 to 80 gallons of water. Imagine hands big enough to cup that amount of water. Boy, you'd have huge hands, wouldn't you? So just so you get the concept of God's greatness that Isaiah is talking about, and he wouldn't have known this in his day, the world's water supply is about 326 million cubic miles. A cubic mile is more than one trillion gallons. And there is 326 million of those trillion gallons. So, I mean, it just boggles the mind. Just in the little cup of his hand. Whatever your circumstances, can, can God do it? I mean, is he big enough? Is he great enough? Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Now, a span, if you put your hand out again and you look at your thumb to your little finger and you, you stretch it out as good as you can, that's about nine inches. I measured it yesterday. It was almost exactly nine inches for me. How big are the heavens? Let's just say we just look at our galaxy, the Milky Way, which is fairly significant, and look at it in these terms. My family used to drive 24-7 to California every once in a while. That's a huge distance. I mean, imagine if your hand was big enough to measure from Abbotsford to Los Angeles. That would be incredible. But think of the heavens. Think of just our one galaxy. And let's say you had a Porsche, a supercharged Porsche that could go the speed of light, and you would start driving as soon as church is finished today. Okay, wait till church is over. You would start driving, and you want to go from one end of our galaxy to the other. How long do you think it would take? 10 years? No bathroom stops? 100 years? Thousand years? About a hundred thousand years. And that's just the one galaxy. He measures the heavens in the span of his hand. Is God great? Who has enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? 
I go to the grocery store sometimes and I, you take certain produce that are sold by the pound and you, you lift them up and you put them in a scale. Can you imagine taking Mount Baker and other mountains and putting them in a scale? I mean, who could do that? Nobody, of course. God is great. Can he help you? Can he do it? Isaiah switches the channel to another place. Maybe it was a talk show. Verse 13, who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? So they're talking about, you know, wisdom and things. How does life work? I mean, who's going to measure up to God and his wisdom? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Mm. Isaiah switches to maybe CNN in verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as the dust on the scales. See, Israel had, had, feel, had felt so threatened by other nations and, and they feared and they trembled at, at the threat of them. They had looked to other nations for help. They needed to look up. They needed to behold their God in their circumstances. Nations, the most powerful entities on the earth, are just, they're just nothing to God. They are like a drop in the bucket. Verse 16, he turns maybe to a religious channel, and he talks about sacrifice. Lebanon would not be sufficient for fuel, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. So imagine all the timber of British Columbia are massive forests. And, and hundreds of square miles of them, not even, even enough to kindle the fire for the sacrifice towards God. In light of this, how foolish they would be to turn to anything, anyone else but God for help. You see, idolatry in the Old Testament times, it was, um, it was because people would want to hedge their bets. They weren't necessarily completely abandoning the God of Israel, Yahweh, but they would want to hedge their bets like just in case, we should also worship this God. We should also offer something to this God. But God is the kind of, of being who is so great, it, it only makes sense to worship him alone. Why would we look to anything else for our deliverance, for our help, for our refuge? Verse 18, to whom then will you liken God or what likeness compare with him? And I think Isaiah, Isaiah isn't convinced that they will be convinced yet. He says in verse 21, do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it been not told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens. It's like he's flicking through the channels now. Science. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing. He's flicked back to CNN in verse 23 and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither. All flesh is like grass and the tempest carries them off like stubble. Do you believe yet? Can God help you? Will he? To whom then will you compare me, verse 25, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Let's go back to science. Let's go back to creation. Verse 26, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. 
He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Dale Allison Jr. has written a book called Luminous Dusk, and in it he talks about how the night sky has disappeared from theology. He says, despite our ignoring the fact, the retreat of the stars has not been trivial. And what he gets at is that because we are so inundated by technology and we're sort of always looking down, do you notice that when people have their phones and we're, we're always looking down? He says, when we, when we get away from technology and we begin to look at creation again, we begin to recapture the wonder of it. We lose out when we don't take time to, to look at the stars and to consider the majesty of them. Wonder happens when we see the stars and then when we know from what Isaiah has written and what the psalmist has written that God put them in place and he calls them by name. Do you know how many stars there are? Like trillions in our galaxy. God has placed each one, Isaiah says, and he's called them by name. Something pretty special about being named. Something pretty special about a person remembering your name. I struggle with that. Just so you know, this is a confession now. I struggle with remembering names. So if we're having a conversation and I, you can tell or you, know, you might suspect I've forgotten your name, please just be gracious and just say I'm so-and-so. Last week, I met a guy I hadn't seen for a couple years and I walked up to him and I named him. And I shook his hand, and he was startled because he couldn't remember mine. It was obvious. I thought, wow, that was great. Where did that come from? Sometimes when I'm with my, uh, one of my kids, and we're, let's say we're in a uh, supermarket or whatever, and they can tell. We're walking up to somebody, and they know me, and I know them, but I can't remember the name, and I need to introduce. And so they've learned, hi, my name is Amy. And you just, you know, and boom, the name, the name comes back, and it, you know, it saves us a lot of embarrassment and all that kind of thing. But when somebody knows your name, it, it means you're valued. You're recognized. God puts the stars into place, and he calls them by name. What does that say about him? Well, Jacob had a question, Israel, in verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? See, I can think maybe, okay, I believe God is great, and yeah, you've convinced me, Isaiah. I, you know what? Yeah, I'll give you that. God is great. He's awesome. He's all-powerful. But he doesn't care about me. My way is disregarded by the Lord. Like, look at my circumstances. God doesn't notice me. Oh, yes, he does. He called the stars by name. He knows the stars by name, and he knows every hair on your head. He knows you, and he cares for you. The great God, creator, who does not faint and never grows weary, whose understanding is unsearchable, he gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. He cares. See, in, chap in, in verse 30, we're reminded that all human resources eventually fail. All human capacity is eventually just not enough. Even youths 
shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. We all have a capacity, no matter how young you are, no matter how strong you are in the physical sense, so it is in the spiritual, in the inner man, we all have a capacity that will not be enough. I've um, had the chance uh, in the last little while to look at some CrossFit uh, documentaries and just amazing what some of these athletes will do to their body to get themselves ready for these bizarre uh, competitions they do, you know, to show their strength and endurance. And typically what happens is on the first day of the meet, you know, everybody does their best, but there's more than just one day. And so, you know, you've got to do well, not just on Thursday or Friday, you've got to do well Saturday and you've got to do really well on Sunday. And, you know, there are abilities that start to waver as you get to that last day because they have a capacity. They have a limit. They can't do on Sunday what they did on Friday or Thursday. But they who wait on the Lord, it's different for them. Because you're not tapping into just your own capacity, you're tapping into the capacity of God. Not only is God great, but he's great for you. Those who wait on the Lord, they shall mount up with eagles. They shall mount up as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. See, the words of that verse are only true of us, not because of anything within us, but only because of someone outside of us, our hope, our God. And as we trust him in that faith transaction, what is true of God becomes true of us. This is a picture of the gospel Just as Jesus died on the cross and his righteousness was given to us so that what was true of him becomes true of us, so we see that in Isaiah here. If you look at the verse 28 at the end of it, it talks about God. He does not grow faint. He does not grow weary. And now what does it say about us in verse 31? Those who trust in God, those who wait on him, they also do not grow faint. They also do not become weary. Maybe you're skeptical, just, just as you would be if a superhero flew into this room and you go, yeah, right. But I want you to know this morning that what God promises, he keeps. The promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ and those who wait on him, and that word is in participle form, which means those who rest in God and rest in God, those who look to God, those who hope in God, they do it on an ongoing basis. It's part of their lifestyle. Those who do that, what what is true of God, his strength becomes yours. He can do it. He does do it. He will do it. So as we think about this incredible promise of Isaiah, he's also included in this chapter points of, of, of how we go about making ourselves, of availing ourselves to this amazing grace that God has for us. It's all about God, and we just need to make space for him. So we repent. We, we turn away from those things that are not of God. We make a highway for his presence. We want his presence in our lives. 
We make space by turning off technology in a very practical way. Sometimes we've got to put that technology aside and just go spend some time in God's creation. Go out in his playground and just, just enjoy what God has made and see his handiwork and enjoy him in that place and, and talk to him and know him. Make space for God. Look at God. I mean, see him. See God from his word. See who we are from his word. The word of God is eternal. And in his word, we, we, we have a sure foundation of hope. God's promises in his word are sure. See, Israel's previous hope was built on entitlement and what they could do. But after punishment, their hope would be not in the fact that they were great or that they could accomplish something. Their hope would be in the fact that they are small, but God is great. We need to look to him. Consider the greatness of our God. Read his word like Isaiah 40 and meditate on it. And let it soak in. This God we serve, this God who loves us, is all-powerful. And then we need to rehearse it. If you look in verse 9, <clears throat> go on up to high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. See, we need to proclaim this to one another, but before we can do that, we need to proclaim it to ourselves. We talk about in our circles about rehearsing the gospel. We've got to remind ourselves of who God is and what he's done for us. And let that soak into the very depths of our heart. And then we need to mind, remind one another, how great is our God, huh? So we have these conversations and, you know, it can go, the weather's bad or, you know, this went wrong or that went wrong. Well, how about we change the channel and we say, well, how, how great is our God in this circumstance? And we encourage one another and hope starts to rise up inside of us. But it's got to start with ourselves first. In Psalm 42, verse 11, it's, it's, it's a psalm where he talks to himself and at the end of the, the psalm he says, why are you so downcast, my soul? Hope in God. In other words, we, we take ourselves, and you know how it is those days where you just feel lousy for some reason, and your emotions are in the toilet, and you just, you don't know why, you're just that way. It's in those times, it's, we don't just let our emotions rule our day, we let the word of God rule our day, we let truth rule our day, and we say, soul, why are you downcast? Don't you know you got a great God? He measures the heavens in the span of his hand. He holds the waters of the earth in the cup of his hand. That's my God. Oh. And the soul starts to wake up to it. Wake up, soul. And we declare that to one another. We lift up our voices. And that's part of our worshiping together that we do on, on Sunday mornings. And when we gather, like we'll do tomorrow night, we lift up our voice and we declare to God and, and it, it, it touches our soul with one another. And then this empowers us just to live, live for God's greatness, live for his glory as we wait on him, as we rest in him, as we allow him to strengthen us and empower us in great anticipation of not only what he's gonna do in our life today, 
See, God's kingdom has come today, and it is yet coming. So we live in this great hope of, what, how will I see God at work in my life today? But also, what will I see in that future day, in the next age? We are people of hope. Not because of anything we can do or because of who we are, but because of our great God. This theme of exile and freedom is most fully seen in Jesus Christ. So historically, after Israel, Judah went into exile to Babylon. After about 70 years, some of them started to return to Jerusalem. How, how God could do this will be explained more so in Isaiah. But how he would do a more complete exodus in Jesus Christ will be explained in like Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 55, which we're gonna look at at Easter time. Because God is a God who suffers and God is a God who gives life. After 70 years, Israel's exodus, Israel's comfort will be partial, but after Christ, it has been made fully available. If ever there was a doubt about God's power and that he is for you, we look to the cross. In Romans chapter eight, it says, what shall we then say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If he freely gave us his son, will he not along with him give us all things? So this morning we celebrate communion. And as we do so, we're reminded of the greatness of God, the salvation that he's brought, but also of the hope that we have in the life that we live today and the hope that we have for our future. As the worship team comes and gets ready here, uh, we are going to have the servers. We'll pass out the elements. This is a reenactment, if you will, of the hope that God has given to us. We're gonna take a piece of bread and we will eat it. We're gonna drink a cup of juice, which we'll drink. The bread, blood, uh, sorry, the, the bread represents the body of Jesus Christ. When he died on that cross, his body was broken so that our sins could be forgiven, that we could come into a right relationship with Jesus Christ. His blood was shed so that we could come into what we call a covenant relationship with God, that he is committed to us, and we want to be committed to him. That through his, his life, his death, and then rising from the dead, his resurrection, we are made new creations in Christ, and we know that what we experience here in this life on this earth is good, but it's just a taste of what is to come. I'm going to read to you out of um, Luke. Luke chapter 22, when Jesus was sitting with his disciples, he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup when he had given thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom comes. We, we take this in anticipation of another day when we're gonna take it with Jesus. The servers are going to pass out.